0: Basically, by identifying it at the neighborhood level, people no longer see climate change as something, it's about polar bears, or it's about sea ice, or about glaciers melting, but it actually has to do with them, it has to do with their own neighborhoods. And I think that is perhaps one of the most essential first steps in building a strong base of support and communicating to the public is putting people into the climate picture, because most of the polling demonstrates that people are concerned about climate change, but they believe it's going to affect someone else and or some population very far into the
1: future. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. and Vernice Miller-Travis.
2: Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. Today, we are kicking off a four-part series on climate adaptation. And today, the conversation focuses on the importance of emphasizing the local impacts of climate change when trying to build a coalition for action. This is your host, Mike Hancock's, Bernice Miller-Travis is off for the next few episodes, preparing for an upcoming series we are creating on climate equity. But we have a great guest co-host for this series, and I'm very excited to be working with her. Kate Meese is the Executive Director of the Local Government Commission. Kate is a champion for local governments, a recognized leader in local climate change adaptation, mitigation, and clean energy efforts, and an ardent coalition builder. Kate and the Local Government Commission have been our partners in creating the Infinite Earth podcast, and they are our partners in the new Infinite Earth Academy we just launched. Kate is incredibly knowledgeable on this subject. She's also been a great and supportive partner on this podcast. Kate, thanks for being our guest host for this series.
3: Happy to do it, Mike, and especially on a topic that is so important for the Local Government Commission. I have to say I am very blessed to have the opportunity to work with a number of leaders in this space and on such a, different, a difficult and complex issue to have so many people that inspire me and give me hope that we can not only address the impacts of climate change, but also really make our communities better to make them more resilient and prosperous. So I'm very pleased to introduce one of those inspiring leaders, someone I have a tremendous amount of respect for and a a ton of admiration for, Steve Frisch, the president of Sierra Business Council. Over the last 20 years, Sierra Business Council has leveraged more than $100 million of investment in the Sierra Nevada and its communities through community and public partnerships, Sierra Business Council also manages the Sierra Small Business Development Center, focusing on advancing sustainable business practices and linking new and expanding businesses to climate mitigation and adaptation funding. So, Steve, thank you so much for being with us today.
4: Thanks, Kate. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Our other guest is Jonathan Parfrey. Jonathan is the Executive Director and Founder of Climate Resolve, a Los Angeles-based not-for-profit that is dedicated to creating practical solutions to meet the climate challenge while making Southern California more livable and prosperous today and for generations to come by inspiring people to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and local air pollution, as well as preparing for climate change impacts. Jonathan, thank you for being with us today.
0: Thank you. Happy to be here.
2: Kate, I know you have a lot of great questions you've prepared. Why don't you kick us off?
3: Sure. Well, why don't we start with a question on your organizations and how you got involved in planning around climate change and some of the the impacts that are anticipated in each of your unique regions and why don't we kick it off with Steve answering that first?
4: Sure, thanks Kate. I first came to Sierra Business Council by owning a small business through owning a small business in the Sierra Nevada. And one of the first things I noticed working in the region was how incredibly dependent the Sierra Nevada was upon the landscape, the forest, the climate, really just the beauty of the region and that as an attractor. And it was very clear from the first minute I was in business in the Sierra Nevada that we weren't really properly valuing ecosystem function, the natural environment, people's connection to nature as part of kind of the system. Sierra Business Council is really founded around this idea that natural, social, and financial capital should be equally valued and that economies should serve nature and the community at the same time. And nothing's closer to the concept of climate resilience and climate adaptation than than that idea that our human and natural systems need to be integrated in order to protect the planet.
3: Great. Thanks, Steve. So, Jonathan, what about you? How did you get involved in planning around climate resilience?
0: Well, our organization was founded about six years ago. And at the time, I was serving as a commissioner at the L.A. Department of Water and Power. This is an institution made famous by the movie Chinatown. Los Angeles has a reputation of being kind of a mini empire. And and so the DWP uh, is thought of as one of the arms of that empire, bringing in water from the eastern Sierra and, and in fact, uh, across the desert from the Colorado River. So... There is that sense that there's an incredible environmental responsibility and uh, a lack of uh, of awareness among Angelinos about its dependence on other ecosystems uh, on other parts of the the southwest, especially the Sierra Nevada and it came out of that deep concern that Los Angeles was so Dependent. There's so many climate risks associated with the the region. Uh, the the studies that have been performed show that Los Angeles is at is at uh, a very high risk for, for very vulnerable to to climate impacts. That we decided to really elevate what uh, Los Angeles would look like in coming decades, given these climate impacts. And through our work, we also recognize that. You can't just talk about the bad news. If you just tell people that there are going to be these huge impacts from climate on a local region, people turn off. They they don't pay attention. You have to provide some uh, tangible, real ways that are commensurate with the problem that they can help meet that climate challenge. And so even though climate change is global in nature, it really does come down to where people live. And so our organization decided to focus in on how Southern California can meet the climate challenge and also what can be done locally, what we can do to tangibly make things better within our own region. And when it comes to climate change, you can do things about those impacts on a local basis and you can also encourage people to participate in ways to mitigate climate impacts as well. And so that's how we, we came to focus in on Southern California, because we believe it's essential to take this global issue and make it felt in a very tangible way at the local level, basically neighborhood by neighborhood and household by household.
3: Jonathan, as you talk about all these different scales at which you can work and the fact that LA is a mini empire, I'm curious to hear how you've dealt with the cross-cutting issues that surface across all these different jurisdictional boundaries, whether that's a water utility district or neighborhood to neighborhood, city to city the issues you have across regions. How do you govern in such a complex environment?
0: Well, that's a great question. And here in Los Angeles around 2008, we helped found a regional collaborative. It's called the LA Regional Collaborative for Climate Action and Sustainability. And some of the major institutions of the region have come together to study the problem of climate change together, to do studies that, of course, see no geographical boundary between them having to do with political lines, but instead uh, having to do with watersheds. In Los Angeles County, for example, there are 88 separate municipalities, 88. And even though the city of Los Angeles is the biggest one, There are still many regional governments. Also, there's uh, transportation districts. There are mosquito abatement districts. There are water districts. And the goal of the LA Regional Collaborative is to bring together those various agencies and to engage them in ways that we discuss best practices. We come up with climate policies that could really benefit the region. And so it's been a a great experiment thus far, and the LA Regional Collaborative continues to this day.
3: Great. What about you, Steve? You, You don't have the same sort of densely populated region, but certainly the region that the Sierra Business Council oversees or partners with, it's very geographically spread out and has a huge footprint in terms of of the geography. How do you bring people together over such a large area and find common threads and, and think about issues of governance and building your resiliency?
4: Yeah, it really is a fundamentally different landscape and a much larger landscape than Los Angeles, but I think in many ways less complex than the challenge that Jonathan faces. Part of it is that The communities of the Sierra really share a relatively common geography, that is mountainous terrain, forest covered. They are the source watersheds of most of the water supply, more than 65% of the developed water supply in the state of California. Most of them are economies based around, uh, you know, originally resource management, things like forestry and grazing and others but increasingly service economy. So I actually think that we have a slightly more homogeneous region to work within and and kind of more common interests between many of the local governments. With that said, they're very spread out and they're under-resourced. You know, often we're dealing with agencies that, or local governments that might have one or two planning staff members to do everything in a county. And that's that's true in five of the counties that we work in. So really, it's incumbent upon us to provide kind of a center where we can share data and information and ideas, where we can help them communicate with what's happening in other areas of the state, partly through the climate collaboratives like Jonathan's, who we partner with, and through our own climate collaborative in the Sierra Nevada. And part of how we do our work, too, is relationship. It's a little bit easier for us, I think even though we're spread out, to build these strong personal one-on-one relationships with community leaders and staff people who are responsible for implementing adaptation and mitigation policies. So with that said, I think one of our great challenges and great opportunities is really strengthening the connection between urban climate adaptation planning and rural climate adaptation planning, because we share the same ecosystem, and we're often working in the same ecosystem. And I think that's an incredibly important part of what something like the Climate Adaptation Forum can do: is provide an opportunity to work across the boundaries that have traditionally divided us.
0: Well, I, I just want to say, Steve, that that's absolutely right. Los Angeles is wholly dependent on its relationship with the Sierra Nevada, especially for water supply. So, for the city of LA, the city brings in about 90% of of its water is imported for local use. And even when people are out enjoying the newly revived L.A. River, what people are kayaking on today is treated, imported water that has gone through the water pollution treatment facilities and, and then they're out on a boat enjoying it. It's a wonderful thing, but it's imported water and people don't realize that.
4: Yeah. I think there's something you said a couple minutes ago, Jonathan, that really resonated with me, and that was this idea that we have to accentuate the positive and the opportunity for really creating solutions here. And it's easy to focus on kind of long-range climate predictions and look at things like California losing perhaps as much as half of its precipitation and Across our region we're seeing forests dying on an unprecedented scale but there are also incredible opportunities for that to essentially make us better at water conservation and groundwater recharge and at really using our water supply more wisely and at finding new ways to manage our forests in order to to really understand the link between forest management and water supply upstream watershed and downstream users and and reuse. And that's actually a great opportunity to bring California together.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. You know, what is the statistic, Steve? There's something like 66 million trees that have died in the latest drought.
4: Yeah, the state's tree mortality task force actually just recently upped that to 77 million. The data is really showing that after four years, five years perhaps of drought, we're probably looking at that figure as much as doubling over the next two years because many of the trees that have died really haven't demonstrated the signs of dying yet. So there are areas in the Sierra National Forest and the Stanislaus National Forest where you have thousands of acres with 95% tree mortality.
3: Wow. So picking up on this idea that we need to work together and thinking about issues as large as the ones you're speaking about with tree mortality and with the drought and the opportunities around conservation. Can you speak a little bit to the opportunities to bring regions together and how we can build around a a statewide effort. Clearly, these aren't challenges that the Sierra Nevada region can take on themselves, and we need to come together. And, And specifically thinking about the work we all do together with the Alliance of Regional Collaboratives for Climate Adaptation, and would love to hear your thoughts on how groups like that can mobilize a unified voice around change.
4: Well, I think that ARCA, the the Alliance for Regional Collaboratives for Climate Adaptation, is a great example of the beginning of this happening in California. So the early stages of our climate policy has really been around mitigation and the concept that we should reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which, of course, we know we need to do and we should continue to do. But the reality is that for a lot of the impacts we're anticipating, we really need A very strong adaptation strategy as well because global GHG emission or CO2 equivalent atmospheric numbers are really kind of baked in at this point. So we're going to see forest change. We're going to see precipitation change. We're going to see heat waves in urban centers like Los Angeles. We're going to see public health impacts, and we need to figure out in advance how to work with those. The second wave of California climate policy has been to begin to understand that adaptation is at least equally as important as mitigation, and that planning in advance for these events is necessary. And I think the first step towards really doing that is the Alliance for Regional Collaboratives for Climate Adaptation. The point that San Diego and Los Angeles and San Francisco and Sacramento and the Sierra Nevada are... Bringing together these public-private partnerships to work across the boundaries is incredibly important, and it should be a driver of state policy. We should be looking at this as a whole system, and we should also be looking at how we can work across the transects in order to develop strategies that are really going to be effective and cost-effective in the long run. We're at the beginning of one of the greatest challenges of our lifetime, of our century probably.
0: So I, I really appreciate the work of uh, ARCA. It's sort of a collaborative of the collaboratives, and when, when I got together with Bruce Reardon years ago, we we talked about trying to find some ways of sharing best practices among the regional collaboratives. It it's emerged into something that's really exciting, and what I find fascinating is that is that California's. Climate Adaptation Collaboratives are so very different in how they're organized. So San Diego has its origins with a local community foundation. In San Francisco, it's the regional governments uh, like ABAG and the Bay Authority and the Transportation Authority. In Sacramento, it's the, the air districts and LGC that have been playing such a a great a leadership role and when it comes to the Sierra Nevada, the Sierra Business Council has been the, the heart of that effort. And in Los Angeles, our collaborative LARC is located at UCLA. So there's sort of a, a university tie-in and we thought in LA the advantage of that is is that it removes some of the natural competition that exists between uh, City of L.A. and L.A. County, the two biggest players, and you're you're able to find a, a disinterested but powerful party that could, could host that, that collaborative. And it's been a, a great experience to see how this has been manifested in all of these unique ways, and not one is the same. And at the same time, what is important to, to recognize is that all these collaboratives, for the good that they do, right now are somewhat without any kind of uh, legislative authority. They do not have the ability to enforce policy at the local level or at the regional level. And that is something that I think it, we're, we're coming to a, uh, a decision point in the near future where we have to find out you know, really how are these collaboratives going to be effective in, in coming years. Is it just through voluntary efforts or due to the necessity of meeting the climate challenge? Will it have to transform and will it have to have some joint powers authority vested in it to actually uh, move policy at the local level? And there's events like the Climate Adaptation Forum that I think will be airing a number of these important issues because I think You know, very soon we're going to have to answer that in some more definitive way.
3: Great. So, building on that, I want to move on to thinking about how do we communicate these challenges, whether it's to legislators or whether it's to community members, so that we really can build that momentum to have more authority and to bring more funding into the movement. So, starting with you, Jonathan you talked about taking this global issue to the neighborhood level, to the local level. And I want to drill down a little more on that and hear how you've been able to engage people at the level of the community around strategies that that perhaps you do have authority around and the changes you can make at that local level, and specifically some of the efforts around LA path the positive, which has been really effective over the last year or so.
0: Sure. So one of the areas that, that we've been engaged in from the very beginning is in the area of research and taking some of the global climate models and uh, working with the folks at UCLA that have that in turn uh, performed downscales of these global climate models. And up until a few years ago, people sort of chose two or three or four or five or even ten global climate models and said these were the key ones and we're just going to focus in on those. But what UCLA did, and I think it's an innovation in its work, is that they pretty much downscaled all 30 of the sort of accredited global climate models that exist and looked for an ensemble mean across all of those models to really try to tease out where the effects actually might be seen. And so when it comes to temperature, let's say in Southern California, UCLA looked out to mid-century, to 2050, and rather than going with the 100 or 200-kilometer resolution global climate models, they did dynamical downscaling, which took hundreds of billions of calculations to get down to a two-kilometer assessment. So basically looking at Los Angeles neighborhood by neighborhood, trying to really understand what is in store for the region by the mid-century epoch. And then also going out towards end of century and also looking at different various emission models that are part of the IPCC toolkit. And basically, by identifying it at the neighborhood level, people no longer see climate change as something, it's about polar bears or it's about sea ice or about glaciers melting, but it actually has to do with them. It has to do with their own neighborhoods. And I think that is perhaps one of the most essential first steps in building a strong base of support and communicating to the public is putting people into the climate picture because most of the polling demonstrates that people are concerned about climate change but they believe it's going to affect someone else and or some population very far into the future so what we also were very interested in doing is then proposing solutions at the local level so we were looking at having to do with uh, ways of defeating the urban heat island effect in Southern California. So we were also looking at these climate models and saying, okay, where are the areas that are gonna be most impacted? What are the communities that'll be most impacted by these future temperatures? And we then tried to target policies that would uh, defeat urban heat island in those very neighborhoods. So it's a way of taking uh, some of the, the science and making it relevant at the local level for, for policy.
2: Unfortunately, we're running out of time today. So we'll pick up this great conversation next week and go deeper on how to effectively communicate climate change issues with diverse stakeholder groups. Thank you all for listening. And we look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio.
1: Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at InfiniteEarthRadio.com or join us on Facebook at www.Facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.